Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 10 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 10. The Law Writer. On the eastern borders of Chancery Lane, that is to say, more particularly in Cook's Court, Cursitor Street, Mr. Snagsby, law-stationer, pursues his lawful calling. In the shade of Cook's Court, at most times a shady place, Mr. Snagsby has dealt in all sorts of blank forms of legal process, in skins and rolls of parchment, in paper, foolscap, brief, draught, brown, white, whitey-brown, and blotting in stamps in office quills pens ink india rubber pounce pins pencils sealing-wax and wafers in red tape and green ferret in pocket-books almanacs diaries and law-lists in string-boxes rulers inkstands, glass and leaden pen-knives scissors bodkins and other small office cutlery in short in articles too numerous to mention ever since he was out of his time, and went into partnership with Pepper. On that occasion Cook's court was in a manner revolutionised by the new inscription in fresh paint, Pepper and Snagsby, displacing the time-honoured and not easily to be deciphered legend Pepper only. For smoke, which is the London ivy, had so wreathed itself round Pepper's name, and clung to his dwelling-place, that the affectionate parasite quite overpowered the parent tree. Peffer is never seen in Cook's court now. He is not expected there, for he has been recumbent this quarter of a century in the churchyard of St. Andrew's, Hoban, with the wagons and hackney-coaches roaring past him all the day and half the night, like one great dragon. If he ever steal forth, when the dragon is at rest, to air himself again in Cook's court, until admonished to return, by the crowing of the sanguine cock in the cellar at the little dairy in Cursitor Street, whose ideas of daylight it would be curious to ascertain, since he knows from his personal observation next to nothing about it. If Peffer ever do revisit the pale glimpses of Cook's court, which no law-stationer in the trade can positively deny, he comes invisibly and no one is the worse or wiser. In his lifetime, and likewise in the period of Snagsby's time, of seven long years, there dwelt with Peffer in the same law-stationering premises a niece, a short, shrewd niece, something too violently compressed about the waist, and with a sharp nose like a sharp autumn evening, inclining to be frosty towards the end. The cook's courtiers had a rumour flying among them that the mother of this niece did, in her daughter's childhood, moved by too jealous a solicitude that her figure should approach perfection, lace her up every morning with her maternal foot against the bedpost for a stronger hold and purchase, and further that she exhibited internally pints of vinegar and lemon juice, which acids they held had mounted to the nose and temper of the patient. 
With whichsoever of the many tongues of rumour this frothy report originated, it either never reached or never influenced the ears of young Snagsby, who, having wooed and won its fair subject on his arrival at man's estate, entered into two partnerships at once. So now, in Cook's Court, Cursitor Street, Mr. Snagsby and the niece are one, and the niece still cherishes her figure, which, however tastes may differ, is unquestionably so far precious that there is mighty little of it. Mr. and Mrs. Snagsby are not only one bone and one flesh, but, to the neighbours thinking, one voice too. That voice, appearing to proceed from Mrs. Snagsby alone, is heard in Cook's Court very often. Mr. Snagsby, otherwise than as he finds expression through these dulcet tones, is rarely heard. He is a mild, bald, timid man, with a shining head, and a scrubby clump of black hair sticking out of the back. He tends to meekness and obesity. As he stands at his door, in Cook's Court, in his grey shop-coat and black calico sleeves, looking up at the clouds, or stands behind a desk in his dark shop with a heavy flat ruler, snipping and slicing at sheepskin in company with his two prentices, he is emphatically a retiring and unassuming man. From beneath his feet, at such times, as from a shrill ghost unquiet in its grave, there frequently arise complainings and lamentations in the voice already mentioned, and, happily on some occasions, when these reach a sharper pitch than usual, Mr. Snagsby mentions to the prentices, "'I think my little woman is a-giving it to Guster.' This proper name, so used by Mr. Snagsby, has before now sharpened the wit of the cook's courtiers to remark that it ought to be the name of Mrs. Snagsby, seeing that she might, with great force and expression, be termed a Guster, in compliment to her stormy character. It is, however, the possession, and the only possession, except fifty shillings per annum, and a very small box indifferently filled with clothing, of a lean young woman from a workhouse, by some supposed to have been christened Augusta, who, although she was farmed or contracted for, during her growing time, by an amiable benefactor of his species, resident at Tooting, and cannot fail to have been developed under the most favourable circumstances, has fits, which the parish can't account for. Guster, really aged three or four-and-twenty, but looking around ten years older, goes cheap with this unaccountable drawback of fits, and is so apprehensive of being returned on the hands of her patron saint, that except when she is found with her head in the pail, or the sink, or the copper, or the dinner, or anything else that happens to be near her at the time of her seizure, she is always at work. She is a satisfaction to the parents and guardians of the prentices, who feel that there is little danger of her inspiring tender emotions in the breast of youth. She is a satisfaction to Mrs. Snagsby, who can always find fault with her. She is a satisfaction to Mr. Snagsby, who thinks it a charity to keep her. The law stationer's establishment is, in Guster's eyes, a temple of plenty and splendour. She believes the little drawing-room upstairs, always kept, as one may say, with its hair in papers, and its pinafore on, to be the most elegant apartment in Christendom. The view it commands of Cook's Court at one end, not to mention a squint into Cursitor Street, and of Corvince's, the sheriff's officer's, backyard at the other, she regards as a prospect of unequalled beauty. The portraits it displays in oil, and plenty of it too, of Mr. Snagsby looking at Mrs. Snagsby, and of Mrs. Snagsby looking at Mr. Snagsby, 
are in her eyes as achievements of Raphael or Titian. Gusta has some recompenses for her many privations. Mr. Snagsby refers everything not in the practical mysteries of the business to Mrs. Snagsby. She manages the money, reproaches the tax-gatherers, appoints the times and places of devotion on Sundays, licenses Mr. Snagsby's entertainments, and acknowledges no responsibility as to what she thinks fit to provide for dinner, insomuch that she is the high standard of comparison among the neighbouring wives, a long way down Chancery Lane on both sides, and even out in Holborn, who in any domestic passages of arms habitually call upon their husbands to look at the difference between their, the wives, position, and Mrs. Snagsby's and there the husband's behaviour, and Mr. Snagsby's. Rumour always flying bat-like about Cook's Court, and skimming in and out at everybody's windows, does say that Mrs. Snagsby is jealous and inquisitive, and that Mr. Snagsby is sometimes worried out of house and home, and that if he had the spirit of a mouse he wouldn't stand it. It is even observed that the wives who quote him to their self-willed husbands as a shining example, in reality, look down upon him and that nobody does so with greater superciliousness than one particular lady, whose lord is more than suspected of laying his umbrella on her as an instrument of correction. But these vague whisperings may arise from Mr. Snagsby's being in his way rather a meditative and poetical man, loving to walk in Staple Inn in the summer-time, and to observe how countrified the sparrows and the leaves are, also to lounge about the rolls-yard of a Sunday afternoon, and to remark, if in good spirits, that there were old times once, and that you'd find a stone coffin or two now under that chapel, he'll be bound, if you was to dig for it. He solaces his imagination, too, by thinking of the many chancellors and vices and masters of the rolls who are deceased, and he gets such a flavour of the country out of telling the two prentices how he has heard say that a brook as clear as crystal once ran right down the middle of Hoban, when turnstile really was a turnstile, leading slap away into the meadows, gets such a flavour of the country out of this that he never wants to go there. The day is closing in, and the gas is lighted, but is not yet fully effective, for it is not quite dark. Mr. Snagsby, standing at his shop-door, looking up at the clouds, sees a crow, who is out late, skim westward over the slice of sky belonging to Cook's Court. The crow flies straight across Chancery Lane, and Lincoln's Inn Garden, into Lincoln's Inn Fields. Here, in a large house, formerly a house of state, lives Mr. Tulkinghorn. It is let off in sets of chambers now, and in those shrunken fragments of its greatness lawyers lie like maggots in nuts. But its roomy staircases, passages, and antechambers still remain, and even its painted ceilings, where allegory and Roman helmet and celestial linen sprawls among balustrades and pillars, flowers, clouds, and big-legged boys, and makes the headache, as would seem to be allegory's object always, more or less. Here among his many boxes labelled with transcendent names lives Mr. Tulkinghorn, when not speechlessly at home in country houses where the great ones of the earth are bored to death. Here he is to-day, quiet at his table, an oyster of the old school, whom nobody can open. Like as he is to look at, so is his apartment, in the dusk of the present afternoon. Rusty, out of date, withdrawing from attention, able to afford it. Heavy, broad-backed, old-fashioned mahogany and horse-hair chairs, not easily lifted. 
obsolete tables with spindle legs and dusty baize covers, presentation prints of the holders of great titles in the last generation or the last but one environ him. A thick and dingy turkey carpet muffles the floor where he sits, attended by two candles in old-fashioned silver candlesticks that give a very insufficient light to his large room. The titles on the backs of his books have retired into the binding. Everything that can have a lock has got one. No key is visible. Very few loose papers are about. He has some manuscript near him, but is not referring to it. With the round top of an inkstand and two broken bits of sealing-wax, he is silently and slowly working out whatever train of indecision is in his mind. Now the inkstand top is in the middle, now the red bit of sealing-wax, now the black bit. That's not it. Mr. Tulkinghorn must gather them all up and begin again. Here beneath the painted ceiling, with foreshortened allegory staring down at his intrusion as if it meant to swoop upon him, and he cutting it dead, Mr. Tulkinghorn has at once his house and office. He keeps no staff, only one middle-aged man, usually a little out at elbows, who sits in a high pew in the hall and is rarely overburdened with business. Mr. Tulkinghorn is not in a common way. He wants no clerks. He is a great reservoir of confidences, not to be so tapped. His clients want him. He is all in all. Drafts that he requires to be drawn are drawn by special pleaders in the temple on mysterious instructions. Fair copies that he requires to be made are made at the stationer's, expense being no consideration. The middle-aged man in the pew knows scarcely more of the affairs of the peerage than any crossing-sweeper in Hoban. The red bit, the black bit, the inkstand top, the other inkstand top, the little sandbox. So, you to the middle, you to the right, you to the left. This train of indecision must surely be worked out now or never. Now! Mr. Tulkinghorn gets up, adjusts his spectacles, puts on his hat, puts the manuscript in his pocket, goes out, tells the middle-aged man out at elbows. I shall be back presently. Very rarely tells him anything more explicit. Mr. Tulkinghorn goes as the crow came, not quite so straight, but nearly, to Cook's Court, Cursitor Street, to Snagsby's, law-stationers, deeds engrossed and copied, law-writing executed in all its branches, etc., etc., etc. It is somewhere about five or six o'clock in the afternoon, and a balmy fragrance of warm tea hovers in Cook's Court. It hovers about Snagsby's door. The hours are early there, dinner at half-past one, and supper at half-past nine. Mr. Snagsby was about to descend into the subterranean regions to take tea, when he looked out of his door just now, and saw the crow who was out late. "'Master at home?' Guster is minding the shop, for the prentices take tea in the kitchen with Mr. and Mrs. Snagsby. Consequently, the robe-maker's two daughters, combing their curls of the two glasses in the two second-floor windows of the opposite house, are not driving the two prentices to distraction, as they fondly suppose, but are merely awakening the unprofitable admiration of Guster, whose hair won't grow, and never would, and it is confidently thought, never will. "'Master at home,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'Master is at home, and Guster will fetch him. Guster disappears.' glad to get out of the shop, 
which she regards with mingled dread and veneration as a storehouse of awful implements of the great torture of the law, a place not to be entered after the gas is turned off. Mr. Snagsby appears, greasy, warm, herbaceous, and chewing, bolts a bit of bread and butter, and says, "'Bless my soul, sir, Mr. Tulkinghorn!' "'I want half a word with you, Snagsby.' "'Certainly, sir. Dear me, sir, why, why didn't you send your young man round for me? Pray walk into the back shop, sir.' Snagsby has brightened in a moment. The confined room, strong of parchment grease, is warehouse, counting-house, and copying-office. Mr. Tulkinghorn sits, facing round, on a stool at the desk. "'Jarndyce and Jarndyce, Snagsby.' "'Yes, sir.' Mr. Snagsby turns up the gas, and coughs behind his hand, modestly anticipating profit. Mr. Snagsby, as a timid man, is accustomed to cough with a variety of expressions, and so to save words. "'You copied some affidavits in that cause for me lately?' "'Yes, sir, we did.' "'There was one of them,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, carelessly feeling, tight, unopenable oyster of the old school, in the wrong pocket.' the handwriting of which is peculiar, and I rather like. As I happened to be passing, and thought I had it about me, I looked in to ask you, but I haven't got it. No matter. Any other time will do. Ah, here it is. I looked in to ask you who copied this. Uh, who copied <coughs> this, sir? says Mr. Snagsby, taking it, laying it flat on the desk, and separating all the sheets at once with a twirl and a twist of the left hand, peculiar to law-stationers. "'We gave this out, sir. We were giving out rather a large quantity of work just at that time. I can tell you in a moment who copied it, sir, by referring to my book.' <coughs> Mr. Snagsby takes his book down from the safe, makes another bolt of the bit of bread and butter, which seemed to have stopped short, eyes the affidavit aside, and brings his right forefinger travelling down a page of the book. Juby, Pecker, Jarndyce. Jarndyce. Here we are, sir, says Mr. Snagsby. To be sure, I might have remembered. <laughs> this was given out, sir, to a writer who lodges just over on the opposite side of the lane. Mr. Tulkinghorn has seen the entry, found it before the law-stationer, read it while the forefinger was coming down the hill. "'What do you call him?' "'Nemo,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'Nemo, sir. <coughs> Here it is. Forty-two folio, given out on the Wednesday night at eight o'clock, brought in on the Thursday morning at half after nine. "'Nemo,' repeats Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'Nemo is Latin for no one.' "'It uh, uh, must be English for someone, sir, <coughs> I think,' Mr. Snagsby submits with his deferential cough. <coughs> it, "'It is a person's name. Here it is, you see, sir. Forty-two folio. Given out Wednesday night, eight o'clock, brought in Thursday morning, half after nine. The tail of Mr. Snagsby's eye becomes conscious of the head of Mrs. Snagsby, looking in at the shop-door to know what he means by deserting his tea. Mr. Snagsby addresses an explanatory cough to Mrs. Snagsby, as who should say, "'My dear, a customer.' "'Half after nine, sir,' 
repeats Mr. Snagsby. "'Our law writers who live by job-work are a queer lot, and this may not be his name, but it's the name he goes by. I remember now, sir, that he gives it in a written advertisement he sticks up down at the rule office, and the king's bench office, and the judge's chambers, and so forth. You know the kind of document, sir. <coughs> Wanting employ.' Mr. Tulkinghorn glances through the little window at the back of Corvince's. The sheriff's offices, where lights shine in Corvince's windows, Corvince's coffee-room is at the back, and the shadows of several gentlemen under a cloud loom cloudily upon the blinds. Mr. Snagsby takes the opportunity of slightly turning his head to glance over his shoulder at his little woman, and to make apologetic motions with his mouth to this effect, Tulkinghorn rich influential. "'Have you given this man work before?' asked Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'Oh, oh dear, yes, sir. Work of yours.' "'Thinking of more important matters, I forget where you said he lived?' Uh, "'Of course. Uh, the, the lane, sir. In fact, he lodges at a—' Mr. Snagsby makes another bolt, as if the bit of bread and butter were insurmountable. "'At a rag-and-bottle shop.' "'Can you show me the place as I go back?' Oh, with the greatest of pleasure, sir. Mr. Snagsby pulls off his sleeves and his grey coat, pulls on his black coat, takes his hat from its peg. Oh, here is my little woman, he says aloud. My dear, will you be so kind as to tell one of the lads to look after the shop while I step across the lane with Mr. Tulkinghorn? Mrs. Snagsby, sir. "'I shan't be two minutes, my love.' Mrs. Snagsby bends to the lawyer, retires behind the counter, peeps at them through the window-blind, goes softly into the back office, first to the entries in the book still lying open, is evidently curious. "'You will uh, <coughs> find the place is rough, sir,' says Mr. Snagsby, walking deferentially in the road and leaving the narrow pavement to the lawyer. "'And the uh, party is very rough, but they're a, a wild lot in general, sir. The advantage of this particular man is that he never wants sleep. He'll go at it right on end, if you want him to, as long as ever you like.' It is quite dark now, and the gas-lamps have acquired their full effect. Jostling against clerks going to post the day's letters, and against counsel and attorneys going home to dinner, and against plaintiffs and defendants and suitors of all sorts, and against the general crowd, in whose way the forensic wisdom of ages has interposed a million of obstacles to the transaction of the commonest business of life. Diving through law and equity, and through that kindred mystery, the street mud, which is made of nobody knows what, and collects about us nobody knows whence or how, we only knowing, in general, that when there is too much of it, we find it necessary to shovel it away. The lawyer and the law-stationer come to a rag-and-bottle shop, and general emporium of much disregarded merchandise, lying and being in the shadow of the wall of Lincoln's Inn, and kept, as is announced in paint, to all whom it may concern, by one crook. "'This is where he lives, sir,' says the law-stationer. "'This is where he lives, is it?' says the lawyer, unconcernedly. "'Thank you.' "'Are you uh, not going in, sir?' "'No. Thank you. No. I'm going on to the fields at present. Good evening. Thank you.' 
Mr. Snagsby lifts his hat, and returns to his little woman and his tea. But Mr. Tulkinghorn does not go on to the fields at present. He goes a short way, turns back, comes again to the shop of Mr. Crook, and enters it straight. It is dim enough, with a blot-headed candle or so in the windows, and an old man and a cat sitting in the back part by a fire. The old man rises and comes forward, with another blot-headed candle in his hand. "'Pray, is your lodger within?' "'Male or female, sir?' says Mr. Crook. "'Male. The person who does copying.' Mr. Crook has eyed his man narrowly, knows him by sight, as an indistinct impression of his aristocratic repute. "'Did you wish to see him, sir?' "'Yes.' "'It's what I seldom do myself,' says Mr. Crook, with a grin. "'Shall I call him down? But it's a weak chance, if he comes, sir.' "'I'll go up to him, then,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn. Second floor, sir. Take the candle. Up there.' Mr. Crook, with his cat beside him, stands at the bottom of the staircase, looking after Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'Hi! Hi!' he says, when Mr. Tulkinghorn has nearly disappeared. The lawyer looks down over the handrail. The cat expands her wicked mouth and snarls at him. "'Order, Lady Jane. Behave yourself to visitors, my lady.' "'You know what they say of my lodger?' whispers Crook, going up a step or two. "'What do they say of him?' "'They say he has sold himself to the enemy.' "'But you and I know better. He don't buy. "'I'll tell you what, though. "'My lodger is so black-humoured and gloomy "'that I believe he'd as soon make that bargain as any other. "'Don't put him out, sir. That's my advice.' "'Mr. Tulkinghorn, with a nod, goes on his way. "'He comes to the dark door on the second floor. "'He knocks, receives no answer, opens it, and accidentally extinguishes his candle in doing so. The air of the room is almost bad enough to have extinguished it, if he had not. It is a small room, nearly black with soot and grease and dirt. In the rusty skeleton of a grate, pinched at the middle as if poverty had gripped it, a red coke fire burns low. In the corner by the chimney stand a deal-table and a broken desk, a wilderness marked with a rain of ink. In another corner, a ragged old portmanteau on one of the two chairs serves for cabinet or wardrobe. No larger one is needed, for it collapses like the cheeks of a starved man. The floor is bare, except that one old mat, trodden to shreds of rope-yarn, lies perishing upon the hearth. No curtain veils the darkness of the night, but the discoloured shutters are drawn together, and through the two gaunt holes pierced in them famine might be staring in the banshee of the man upon the bed. For on a low bed opposite the fire, a confusion of dirty patchwork, lean-ribbed ticking and coarse sacking, the lawyer, hesitating just within the doorway, sees a man. He lies there, dressed in shirt and trousers, with bare feet. He has a yellow look, and the spectral darkness of a candle that has guttered down until the whole length of its wick, still burning, has doubled over and left a tower of winding-sheet about it. His hair is ragged, mingling with his whiskers and his beard, 
the latter ragged too and grown, like the scum and mist around him in neglect. Foul and filthy as the room is, foul and filthy as the air is, it is not easy to perceive what fumes those are which most oppress the senses in it, but through the general sickliness and faintness and the odour of stale tobacco, there comes into the lawyer's mouth the bitter, vapid taste of opium. "'Hello, my friend,' he cries, and strikes his iron candlestick against the door. He thinks he has awakened his friend. He lies a little turned away, but his eyes are surely open. "'Hello, my friend,' he cries again. "'Hello! Hello!' As he rattles on the door, the candle which has drooped so long goes out and leaves him in the dark, with the gaunt eyes and the shutters staring down upon the bed. End of chapter 10「Bleak House by Charles Dickens Chapter 11 Our Dear Brother A touch on the lawyer's wrinkled hand, as he stands in the dark room, irresolute, makes him start and say, "'What's that?' "'It's me,' returns the old man of the house whose breath is in his ear. "'Can't you wake him?' "'No.' "'What have you done with your candle?' "'It's gone out. Here it is.' Crook takes it, goes to the fire, stoops over the red embers, and tries to get a light. The dying ashes have no light to spare, and his endeavours are vain. Muttering, after an ineffectual call to his lodger, that he will go downstairs and bring a lighted candle from the shop, the old man departs. Mr. Tulkinghorn, for some new reason that he has, does not await his return in the room, but on the stairs outside. The welcome light soon shines upon the wall, as Crook comes slowly up with his green-eyed cat following at his heels. "'Does the man generally sleep like this?' inquired the lawyer, in a low voice. "'Hi! I don't know,' says Crook, shaking his head and lifting his eyebrows. "'I know next to nothing of his habits, except that he keeps himself very close.' Thus whispering, they both go in together. As the light goes in, great eyes in the shutters, darkening, seem to close. Not so the eyes upon the bed. "'God save us!' exclaims Mr. Tulkinghorn. He is dead. Crook drops the heavy hand he has taken up so suddenly that the arm swings over the bedside. They look at one another for a moment. Sitting for some doctor. Call for Miss Flight up the stairs, sir. He is poisoned by the bed. Call out for flight, will you? Says Crook, with his lean hand spread out above the body like a vampire's wings. Mr. Tulkinghorn hurries to the landing, and calls— "'Miss Flight! Flight! Make haste here, whoever you are! Flight!' Crook follows him with his eyes, and while he is calling, finds opportunity to steal to the old portmanteau and steal back again. "'Run, Flight! Run! The nearest doctor! Run!' So Mr. Crook addresses a crazy little woman, who is his female lodger, 
who appears and vanishes in a breath, who soon returns, accompanied by a testy medical man, brought from his dinner with a broad, snuffy upper lip and a broad, scotch tongue. "'Aye, bless your hearts, ye says the medical man, looking up at them after a moment's examination. "'He's just as dead as fairy.' Mr. Tulkinghorn, standing by the old portmanteau, inquires if he has been dead any time. "'Any time, sir?' says the medical gentleman. "'It's probable you will have been dead about three hours.' "'About that time, I should say,' observes a dark young man on the other side of the bed. "'Are ye in the medical profession yourself, sir?' inquires the first. The dark young man says yes. "'Then I'll just tuck my departure,' replies the other, "'for I'm nae good here.' With which remark he finishes his brief attendance, and returns to finish his dinner. The dark young surgeon passes the candle across and across the face, and carefully examines the law-writer, who has established his pretensions to his name by becoming, indeed, no one. "'I knew this person by sight very well,' says he. He has purchased opium of me for the last year and a half. Was anybody present related to him? Glancing round upon the three bystanders. I was his landlord, grimly answers Crook, taking the candle from the surgeon's outstretched hand. He told me once I was the nearest relation he had. He has died, says the surgeon, of an overdose of opium, there is no doubt. The room is strongly flavoured with it. There is enough here now, taking an old teapot from Mr. Crook, to kill a dozen people. "'Do you think he did it on purpose?' asks Crook. "'Took the overdose?' "'Yes.' Crook almost smacks his lips with the unction of a horrible interest. "'I can't say. I should think it unlikely, as he has been in the habit of taking so much.' "'But nobody can tell. He was very poor, I suppose.' "'I suppose he was. His room don't look rich,' says Crook, who might have changed eyes with his cat, as he casts his sharp glance around. "'But I have never been in it since he had it, and he was too close to name his circumstances to me.' "'Did he owe you any rent?' Six weeks.' "'He will never pay it,' says the young man resuming his examination. "'It is beyond a doubt that he is indeed as dead as Pharaoh, and to judge from his appearance and condition I should think it a happy release. Yet he must have been a good figure when a youth, and I dare say good-looking.' He says this, not unfeelingly, while sitting on the bedstead's edge with his face towards that other face, and his hand upon the region of the heart. "'I recollect once thinking, there was something in his manner uncouth as it was, that denoted a fall in life. Was that so? He continues looking round. Crook replies, "'You might as well ask me to describe the ladies whose heads of hair I've got in sacks downstairs, than that he was my lodger for a year and a half, and lived, or didn't live, by law-writing. I know no more of him.' During this dialogue, Mr. Tulkinghorn has stood aloof by the old portmanteau, with his hands behind him, equally removed, to all appearance, 
from all three kinds of interest exhibited near the bed, from the young surgeon's professional interest in death, noticeable as being quite apart from his remarks on the deceased as an individual, from the old man's unction, and the little crazy woman's awe. His imperturbable face has been as inexpressive as his rusty clothes. One could not even say he has been thinking all this while. He has shown neither patience, nor impatience, nor attention, nor abstraction. He has shown nothing but his shell. As easily might the tone of a delicate musical instrument be inferred from its case, as the tone of Mr. Tulkinghorn from his case. He now interposes, addressing the young surgeon in his unmoved professional way. "'I looked in here,' he observes, "'just before you, with the intention of giving this deceased man, whom I never saw alive, some employment at his trade of copying. I had heard of him from my stationer, Snagsby, of Cook's Court. Since no one here knows anything about him, it might be as well to send for Snagsby.' "'Ah!' to the little crazy woman who has often seen him in court, and whom he has often seen, and who proposes in frightened dumb-show to go for the law-stationer. "'Suppose you do.' While she is gone, the surgeon abandons his hopeless investigation, and covers its subject with the patchwork counterpane. Mr. Crook and he interchange a word or two. Mr. Tulkinghorn says nothing, but stands ever near the old portmanteau. Mr. Snagsby arrives hastily in his grey coat and his black sleeves. "'Dear me, dear me,' he says, "'it has come to this, has it? Bless my soul!' "'Can you give the person of the house any information about this unfortunate creature, Snagsby?' inquires Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'He was in arrears with his rent, it seems, and he must be buried, you know.' <coughs> uh, "'Well, sir,' says Mr. Snagsby, coughing his apologetic cough behind his hand. "'I really don't know what advice I could offer, except sending for the beadle.' "'I don't speak of advice,' returns Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'I could advise—' Uh, "'No one better, sir, I'm sure,' <coughs> says Mr. Snagsby, with his deferential cough. "'I speak of affording some clue to his connections, or to where he came from, or to anything concerning him.' "'I assure you, sir,' <coughs> says Mr. Snagsby, after prefacing his reply with his cough of general propitiation, "'that I no more know where he came from than I know—' "'Where he has gone to, perhaps?' suggests the surgeon to help him out. A pause. Mr. Tulkinghorn looking at the law-stationer. Mr. Crook, with his mouth open, looking for somebody to speak next. <coughs> "'As to his connections, sir,' says Mr. Snagsby, "'if a person was to say to me, uh, Snagsby, "'here's twenty thousand pound down, ready for you in the Bank of England, "'if you'll only name one of them, I couldn't do it, sir. "'About a year and a half ago, <coughs> to the best of my belief, "'at the time when he first came to lodge at the present rag and bottle shop,' "'That was the time,' says Crook, with a nod. "'About a, <clears throat> a year and a half ago,' says Mr. Snagsby, strengthened, "'he came into our place one morning after breakfast, "'and finding my little woman, which I name Mrs. Snagsby, "'when I use that appellation, <clears throat> in our shop, 
produced a specimen of his handwriting and gave her to understand that he was in want of copying work to do and was not to put too fine a point upon it a favourite apology for plain speaking with mr snagsby which he always offers with a sort of argumentative frankness hard up and my little woman is not in general partial to strangers particular <clears throat> not to put too fine a point upon it when they want anything uh, but she was rather took by something about this person whether by his being unshaved or by his hair being in want of attention or by what other lady's reasons i leave you to judge and she accepted of the specimen and likewise of the address <clears throat> my little woman hasn't a good ear for names proceeds mr snagsby after consulting his cough of consideration behind his hand and uh, she considered nemo equally the same as nimrod in consequence of which she got into the habit of saying to me at meals mr snagsby you haven't found nimrod any work yet or mr snagsby why didn't you give that eight-and-thirty chancery folio in jarndyce to nimrod or such like <clears throat> and that is the way he gradually fell into job work at our place <clears throat> and that is the most i know of him except that he was a quick hand and a hand not sparing of night work and that if you gave him out say five and forty folio on the wednesday night you would have it brought in on the thursday morning all of which <clears throat> mr snagsby concludes by politely motioning with his hat towards the bed as much as to add i have no doubt my honourable friend would confirm if he were in a condition to do it hadn't you better see says mr tulkinghorn to crook whether he had any papers that may enlighten you there will be an inquest and you'll be asked the question you can read no i can't returns the old man with a sudden grin snagsby says mr tulkinghorn look over the room for him you will get into some trouble or difficulty otherwise being here i'll wait if you make haste and then I can testify on his behalf, if it should ever be necessary, that all was fair and right. If you'll hold a candle for Mr. Snagsby, my friend, you'll soon see whether there is anything to help you. In the uh, <coughs> first place, here's an old portmanteau, sir, says Snagsby. Ah, to be sure, so there is. Mr. Tulkinghorn does not appear to have seen it before, though he is standing so close to it and though there is very little else, heaven knows. The marine store merchant holds the light, and the law stationer conducts the search. The surgeon leans against the corner of the chimney-piece. Miss Flight peeps and trembles just within the door. The apt old scholar of the old school, with his dull black breeches tied with ribbons at the knees, his large black waistcoat, his long-sleeved black coat, and his wisp of limp white neckerchief tied in the bow the peerage knows so well, stands in exactly the same place and attitude. There are some worthless articles of clothing in the old portmanteau. There is a bundle of pawnbrokers' duplicates, those turnpike tickets on the road of poverty. There is a crumpled paper smelling of opium, on which are scrawled rough memoranda, as took such a day, so many grains, took such another day, so many more, begun some time ago, as if with the intention of being regularly continued, but soon left off. There are a few dirty scraps of newspapers, all referring to coroner's inquests. There is nothing else. 
They search the cupboard and the drawer of the ink-splashed table. There is not a morsel of an old letter or of any other writing in either. The young surgeon examines the dress on the law-writer. A knife and some odd halfpence are all he finds. Mr. Snagsby's suggestion is the practical suggestion after all, and the beadle must be called in. So the little crazy lodger goes for the beadle, and the rest come out of the room. "'Don't leave the cat in there,' says the surgeon. "'That won't do.' Mr. Crook therefore drives her out before him, and she goes furtively downstairs, winding her lithe tail and licking her lips. "'Good night.' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, and goes home to allegory and meditation. By this time the news has got into the court. Groups of its inhabitants assemble to discuss the thing, and the outposts of the army of observation, principally boys, are pushed forward to Mr. Crook's window, which they closely invest. A policeman has already walked up to the room, and walked down again to the door, where he stands like a tower, only condescending to see the boys at his base occasionally, but whenever he does see them, they quail and fall back. Mrs. Perkins, who has not been for some weeks on speaking terms with Mrs. Piper, in consequence for an unpleasantness originating in young Perkins having fetched young Piper a crack, renews her friendly intercourse on this auspicious occasion. The pot-boy at the corner, who is a privileged amateur, as possessing official knowledge of life, and having to deal with drunken men occasionally, exchanges confidential communications with the policeman, and has the appearance of an impregnable youth, unassailable by truncheons and unconfinable in station-houses. People talk across the court out of window, and bareheaded scouts come hurrying in from Chancery Lane to know what's the matter. The general feeling seems to be that it's a blessing Mr. Crook wan't made away with first, mingled with a little natural disappointment that he was not. In the midst of this sensation, the beadle arrives. The beadle, though generally understood in the neighbourhood to be a ridiculous institution, is not without a certain popularity for the moment, if it were only as a man who is going to see the body. The policeman considers him an imbecile civilian, a remnant of the barbarous watchman times, but gives him admission as something that must be borne with until government shall abolish him. The sensation is heightened as the tidings spread from mouth to mouth that the beadle is on the ground and has gone in. By and by the beadle comes out, once more intensifying the sensation, which has rather languished in the interval. He is understood to be in want of witnesses for the inquest to-morrow, who can tell the coroner and jury anything whatever respecting the deceased. Is immediately referred to innumerable people who can tell nothing whatever is made more imbecile by being constantly informed that Mrs. Green's son was a law-writer herself, and knowed him better than anybody, which son of Mrs. Green's appears on inquiry to be at the present time aboard a vessel bound for China, three months out, but considered accessible by telegraph on application to the Lords of the Admiralty. Beadle goes into various shops and parlours, examining the inhabitants, always shutting the door first, and by exclusion, delay, and general idiocy exasperating the public. Policeman seen to smile to pot-boy. Public loses interest and undergoes reaction. Taunts the beadle and shrill youthful voices with having boiled a boy. Choruses fragments of a popular song to that effect, and importing that the boy was made into soup for the workhouse. Policeman at last finds it necessary to support the law, and sees the vocalist, who is released upon the flight of the rest, on condition of his getting out of this, then, 
come and cutting it, a condition he immediately observes. So the sensation dies off for the time, and the unmoved policeman, to whom a little opium more or less is nothing, with his shining hat, stiff stock, and flexible greatcoat, stout belt and bracelet, and all things fitting, pursues his lounging way with a heavy tread, beating the palms of his white gloves one against the other, and stopping now and then at a street corner to look casually about for anything between a lost child and a murder. Under cover of the night, the feeble-minded beadle comes flitting about Chancery Lane with his summonses, in which every juror's name is wrongly spelt, and nothing rightly spelt but the beadle's own name, which nobody can read or wants to know. The summons is served, and his witnesses forewarned, the beadle goes to Mr. Crook's, to keep a small appointment he has made with certain paupers, who, presently arriving, are conducted upstairs, where they leave the great eyes and the shutter something new to stare at, in that last shape which earthly lodgings take for no one, and for every one. And all that night the coffin stands ready by the old portmanteau, and the lonely figure on the bed, whose path in life has lain through five and forty years, lies there with no more track behind him than any one can trace than a deserted infant. Next day the court is all alive, is like a fair, as Mrs. Perkins, more than reconciled to Mrs. Piper, says in amicable conversation with that excellent woman. The coroner is to sit in the first-floor room at the Sol's Arms, where the harmonic meetings take place twice a week, and where the chair is filled by a gentleman of professional celebrity, faced by little Swills, the comic vocalist, who hopes, according to the bill in the window, that his friends will rally round him and support first-rate talent. The Sol's Arms does a brisk stroke of business all the morning. Even children so require sustaining, under the general excitement, that a pie-man, who has established himself for the occasion at the corner of the court, says his brandy-balls go off like smoke. What time the beadle, hovering between the door of Mr. Crook's establishment and the door of the Sol's Arms, shows the curiosity in his keeping to a few discreet spirits, and accepts the compliment of a glass of ale or so in return. At the appointed hour arrives the coroner, for whom the jurymen are waiting, and who is received with a salute of skittles from the good dry skittle-ground attached to the Sol's arms. The coroner frequents more public houses than any man alive. The smell of sawdust, beer, tobacco-smoke, and spirits is inseparable in his vocation from death in its most awful shapes. He is conducted by the beadle and the landlord to the harmonic meeting-room, where he puts his hat on the piano, and takes a Windsor chair at the head of a long table, formed of several short tables put together, and ornamented with glutinous rings in endless involutions made by pots and glasses. As many of the jury as can crowd together at the table sit there. The rest get among the spittoons and pipes, or lean against the piano. Over the coroner's head is a small iron garland, the pendant handle of a bell, which rather gives the majesty of the court the appearance of going to be hanged presently. Call over and swear the jury. While the ceremony is in progress, sensation is created by the entrance of a chubby little man in a large shirt-collar, with a moist eye and an inflamed nose, who modestly takes a position near the door as one of the general public, but seems familiar with the room too. A whisper circulates that this is little swills, it is considered not unlikely that he will get up an imitation of the coroner, and make it the principal feature of the harmonic meeting in the evening. 
"'Well, gentlemen,' the coroner begins. "'Silence there, will you?' says the beadle. "'Not to the coroner, though it might appear so. "'Well, gentlemen,' resumes the coroner, "'you are impanelled here to inquire into the death of a certain man. "'Evidence will be given before you as to the circumstances attending that death, "'and you will give your verdict according to the skittles. "'They must be stopped, you know, beadle. "'Evidence. Not according to anything else.' The first thing to be done is to view the body. "'Make way there!' cries the beadle. So they go out in a loose procession, something after the manner of a straggling funeral, and make their inspection in Mr. Crook's back second floor, from which a few of the jurymen retire pale and precipitately. The beadle is very careful that two gentlemen, not very neat about the cuffs and buttons, for whose accommodation he has provided a special little table near the coroner in a harmonic meeting-room, should see all that is to be seen. They are the public chroniclers of such inquiries by the line, and he is not superior to the universal human infirmity, but hopes to read in print what Mooney, the active and intelligent beadle of the district, said and did, and even aspires to see the name of Mooney as familiarly and patronizingly mentioned as the name of the hangman is, according to the latest examples. Little Swills is waiting for the coroner and jury on their return. Mr. Tulkinghorn also. Mr. Tulkinghorn is received with distinction, and seated near the coroner, between that high judicial officer, a bagatelle-board, and the coal-box. The inquiry proceeds. The jury learn how the subject of their inquiry died, and learn no more about him. "'A very eminent solicitor is in attendance, gentlemen,' says the coroner who, I am informed, was accidentally present when discovery of the death was made, but he could only repeat the evidence you have already heard from the surgeon, the landlord, the lodger, and the law-stationer, and it is not necessary to trouble him. Is anybody in attendance who knows anything more?' Mrs. Piper pushed forward by Mrs. Perkins. Mrs. Piper sworn. "'Anastasia Piper, gentlemen, married woman, now Mrs. Piper.' "'What have you got to say about this?' "'Why, Mrs. Piper has a good deal to say, "'chiefly in parentheses and without punctuation, "'but not much to tell. "'Mrs. Piper lives in the court, "'which her husband is a cabinet-maker, "'and it has long been well be known among the neighbours, "'counting from the day next but one, "'before the half-baptizing of Alexander James Piper, "'aged eighteen months and four days old, "'on accounts of not being expected to live, "'such was the sufferings, gentleman, "'of that child in his gums, as the plaintiff. "'So Mrs. Piper insists on calling the deceased, "'was reported to have sold himself, "'thinks it was the plaintiff's heir "'in which that report originatin'. See the plaintiff often, and considered, as his heir was furious and not to be allowed to go about, some children being timid, and if doubted, hoping Mrs. Perkins may be brought forward, for she is here and will do credit to her husband and herself and family. Has seen the plaintiff waxed and worrited by the children, for children they will ever be, and you cannot expect them, especially if of playful dispositions, to be Methuselahs, which you was not yourself." on accounts of this and his dark looks has often dreamed as she see him take a pickaxe from his pocket and split johnny's head which the child knows not fear and has repeatedly called after him close at his heels never however see the plaintiff take a pickaxe or any other weapon far from it 
has seen him hurry away when run and called after as if not partial to children and never see him speak to neither child nor grown person at any time excepting the boy that sweeps the crossing down the lane over the way round the corner which if he was here would tell you that he has been seen a speaking to him frequent says the coroner is that boy here says the beadle no sir he is not here says the coroner go and fetch him then in the absence of the active and intelligent the coroner converses with mr tulkinghorn oh here's the boy gentlemen here he is very muddy very hoarse very ragged now boy but stop a minute caution this boy must be put through a few preliminary paces name joe nothing else that he knows on don't know that everybody has two names never heard of such a think don't know that joe is short for a longer name thinks it's long enough for him he don't find no fault with it spell it no he can't spell it no father no mother no friends never been to school what's home knows a broom's a broom and knows it's wicked to tell a lie don't recollect who told him about the broom or about the lie but knows both can't exactly say what'll be done to him arter he's dead if he tells a lie to the gentleman here but believes it'll be something very bad to punish him and serve him right and so he'll tell the truth this won't do gentlemen says the coroner with a melancholy shake of the head don't you think you can receive his evidence sir asks an attentive juryman out of the question says the coroner you have heard the boy can't exactly say won't do you know we can't take that in a court of justice gentlemen it's terrible depravity put the boy aside boy put aside to the great edification of the audience especially of little swills the comic vocalist now is there any other witness no other witness very well gentlemen here's a man unknown proved to have been in the habit of taking opium in large quantities for a year and a half found dead of too much opium if you think you have any evidence to lead you to the conclusion that he committed suicide you will come to that conclusion if you think it is a case of accidental death you will find a verdict accordingly verdict accordingly accidental death no doubt gentlemen you are discharged good afternoon while the coroner buttons his great coat mr tulkinghorn and he give private audience to the rejected witness in a corner that graceless creature only knows that the dead man whom he recognized just now by his yellow face and black hair was sometimes hooted and pursued about the streets that one cold winter night when he the boy was shivering in a doorway near his crossing the man turned to look at him and came back and having questioned him and found that he had not a friend in the world said neither have i not one and gave him the price of a supper and a night's lodging that the man had often spoken to him since and asked him whether he slept sound at night and how he bore cold and hunger and whether he ever wished to die and similar strange questions that when the man had no money he would say in passing i am poor as you to-day joe but that when he had any he had always as the boy most heartily believes been glad to give him some he was very good to me 
says the boy, wiping his eyes with his wretched sleeve. "'When I see him a-laying, so stretched out just now, I wished he, he could have heard me tell him so. He was very good to me, he was.' As he shuffles downstairs, Mr. Snagsby, lying in wait for him, puts a half-crown in his hand. "'If you ever see me coming past your crossing with my little woman—I I, I mean a lady—' says Mr. Snagsby, with his finger on his nose. "'Don't allude to it.' For some little time the jurymen hang about the Sol's arms colloquially. In the sequel half a dozen are caught up in a cloud of pipe-smoke that pervades the parlour of the Sol's arms. Two stroll to Hampstead, and four engage to go half-price to the play at night, and top up with oysters. Little Swills is treated on several hands. Being asked what he thinks of the proceedings, characterizes them, his strength lying in a slangular direction, as a rummy start. The landlord of the Sol's Arms, finding little Swills so popular, commends him highly to the jurymen and public, observing that for a song in character he don't know his equal, and that that man's character wardrobe would fill a cart. Thus gradually the Sol's Arms melts into the shadowy night, and then flares out of it strong in gas. The harmonic meeting hour arriving, the gentleman of professional celebrity takes the chair, is faced, red-faced, by little swills. Their friends rally round them and support first-rate talent. In the zenith of the evening, little swills says, "'Gentlemen, if you'll permit me, I'll attempt a short description of a scene of real life that came off here to-day.' Is much applauded and encouraged goes out of the room as Swills, comes in as the coroner, not the least in the world like him, describes the inquest with recreative intervals of pianoforte accompaniment to the refrain, with his, the coroner's, tippy-tolly doll, tippy-tollo-doll, tippy-tolly-doll, d. The jingling piano at last is silent, and the harmonic friends rally round their pillows. Then there is rest around the lonely figure, now laid in its last earthly habitation, and it is watched by the gaunt eyes and the shutters through some quiet hours of night. If this forlorn man could have been prophetically seen lying here by the mother at whose breast he nestled, a little child, with eyes upraised to her loving face, and soft hands scarcely knowing how to close upon the neck to which it crept, what an impossibility the vision would have seemed! Oh, if in brighter days the now-extinguished fire within him ever burned for one woman who held him in her heart, where is she, while these ashes are above the ground? It is anything but a night of rest at Mr. Snagsby's in Cook's Court, where Guster murders sleep by going, as Mr. Snagsby himself allows, not to put too fine a point upon it, out of one fit into twenty. The occasion of this seizure— is that Guster has a tender heart, and a susceptible something that possibly might have been imagination, but for Tooting and her patron saint. Be it what it may, now it was so direfully impressed at tea-time by Mr. Snagsby's account of the inquiry at which he had assisted, that at supper-time she projected herself into the kitchen, preceded by a flying Dutch cheese, and fell into a fit of unusual duration, which she only came out of to go into another, and another, and so on through a chain of fits, with short intervals between, 
of which she has pathetically availed herself by consuming them in entreaties to Mrs. Snagsby not to give her warning when she quite comes to, and also in appeals to the whole establishment to lay her down on the stones and go to bed. Hence Mr. Snagsby, at last hearing the cock at the little dairy in Cursitor Street go into that disinterested ecstasy of his on the subject of daylight, says, drawing a long breath, though the most patient of men, "'I thought you was dead, I'm sure.' What question this enthusiastic fowl supposes he settles when he strains himself to such an extent, or why he should thus crow, so men crow on various triumphant public occasions, however, about what cannot be of any moment to him, is his affair. It is enough that daylight comes, morning comes, noon comes. Then the active and intelligent, who has got into the morning papers as such, comes with his pauper company to Mr. Crook's, and bears off the body of our dear brother, here departed, to a hemmed-in churchyard, pestiferous and obscene, whence malignant diseases are communicated to the bodies of our dear brothers and sisters, who have not departed, while our dear brothers and sisters, who hang about official backstairs, would to heaven they had departed, are very complacent and agreeable into a beastly scrap of ground which a Turk would reject as a savage abomination, and a Kafra would shudder at, they bring our dear brother, here departed, to receive Christian burial. With houses looking on, on every side, save where a reeking little tunnel of a court gives access to the iron gate, with every villainy of life in action close on death, and every poisonous element of death in action close on life, here they lower our dear brother down a foot or two, here sow him in corruption, to be raised in corruption, an avenging ghost at many a sick bedside, a shameful testimony to future ages how civilization and barbarism walked this boastful island together. Come night, come darkness, for you cannot come too soon or stay too long by such a place as this, come straggling lights into the windows of the ugly houses and you who do iniquity therein do it at least with this dread scene shut out come flame of gas burning so sullenly above the iron gate on which the poisoned air deposits its witch ointment slimy to the touch it is well that you should call to every passer-by look here with the night comes a slouching figure through the tunnel court to the outside of the iron gate it holds the gate with its hands, and looks in between the bars, stands looking in for a little while. It then, with an old broom it carries, softly sweeps the step, and makes the archway clean. It does so very busily and trimly, looks in again a little while, and so departs. Joe, is it thou? Well, well, though a rejected witness, who can't exactly say— what will be done to him, in greater hands than men's, thou art not quite in outer darkness. There is something like a distant ray of light in thy muttered reason for this. He was very good to me, he was. End of chapter 11《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12》《チャプター12
on the watch. It has left off raining down in Lincolnshire at last, and Chesney Wold has taken heart. Mrs. Rouncewell is full of hospitable cares, for Sir Leicester and my lady are coming home from Paris. The fashionable intelligence has found it out, and communicates the glad tidings to benighted England. It has also found out that they will entertain a brilliant and distinguished circle of the elite of the beau monde. The fashionable intelligence is weak in English, but a giant refreshed in French, at the ancient and hospitable family seat in Lincolnshire. For the greater honour of the brilliant and distinguished circle, and of Chesney Wold into the bargain, the broken arch of the bridge in the park is mended, and the water, now retired within its proper limits, and again spanned gracefully, makes a figure in the prospect from the house. The clear, cold sunshine glances into the brittle woods, and approvingly beholds the sharp wind scattering the leaves and drying the moss. It glides over the park after the moving shadows of the clouds, and chases them, and never catches them all day. It looks in at the windows, and touches the ancestral portraits, with bars and patches of brightness, never contemplated by the painters. Athwart the picture of my lady, over the great chimney-piece, it throws a broad, bend sinister of light, that strikes down crookedly into the hearth, and seems to rend it. Through the same cold sunshine and the sharp wind, my lady and Sir Leicester, in their travelling chariot, my lady's woman and Sir Leicester's man, affectionate in the rumble, start for home. With a considerable amount of jingling and whip-cracking, and many plunging demonstrations on the part of two bare-backed horses and two centaurs, with glazed hats, jack-boots, and flowing manes and tails, they rattle out of the yard of the Hotel Bristol in the Place Vendôme, and canter between the sun and shadow-checkered colonnade of the Rue de Rivoli, and the garden of the ill-fated palace of a headless king and queen off by the place of concord and the elysian fields and the gate of the star out of paris sooth to say they cannot go away too fast for even here my lady dedlock has been bored to death concert assembly opera theatre drive nothing is new to my lady under the worn-out heavens only last Sunday, when poor wretches were gay, within the walls playing with children among the clipped trees and the statues in the palace garden, walking a score abreast in the Elysian fields, made more Elysian by performing dogs and wooden horses, between whiles filtering a few through the gloomy cathedral of Our Lady, to say a word or two at the base of a pillar, within flare of a rusty little gridiron full of gusty little tapers, without the walls encompassing Paris with dancing, love-making, wine-drinking, tobacco-smoking, tomb-visiting, billiard-card and domino-playing, quack-doctoring, and much murderous refuse, animate and inanimate. Only last Sunday my lady, in the desolation of boredom and the clutch of giant despair, almost hated her own maid for being in spirits. She cannot, therefore, go too fast from Paris. Weariness of soul lies before her, as it lies behind. Her aerial has put a girdle of it round the whole earth, and it cannot be unclasped. But the imperfect remedy is always to fly from the last place where it has been experienced. Fling Paris back into the distance, then exchanging it for endless avenues and cross-avenues of wintry trees, and, when next beheld, let it be some leagues away, with the gate of the star a white speck glittering in the sun, and the city a mere mound in a plain, two dark square towers rising out of it, and light and shadow descending on it aslant, like the angels in Jacob's dream. 
Sir Leicester is generally in a complacent state, and rarely bored. When he has nothing else to do, he can always contemplate his own greatness. It is a considerable advantage to a man to have so inexhaustible a subject. After reading his letters, he leans back in his corner of the carriage, and generally reviews his importance to society. "'You have an unusual amount of correspondence this morning,' says my lady, after a long time. She is fatigued with reading, has almost read a page in twenty miles. "'Nothing in it, though, nothing whatever.' "'I saw one of Mr. Tulkinghorn's long effusions, I think.' "'You see everything,' says Sir Leicester, with admiration. "'Ha!' sighs my lady. "'He is the most tiresome of men.' "'He sends—I really beg your pardon—he sends,' says Sir Leicester, selecting the letter and unfolding it, "'a message to you. Ah, stopping to change horses, as I came to his postscript, drove it out of my memory. I beg you'll excuse me,' he says. Sir Leicester is so long in taking out his eyeglass, and adjusting it, that my lady looks a little irritated. He says, in the matter of the right of way—oh, I beg your pardon, that's not the place. He says—ah, yes, yeah, I have it. He says, I beg my respectful compliments to my lady, who I hope has benefited by the change. Will you do me the favour to mention, as it may interest her, that I have something to tell her on her return, in reference to the person who copied the affidavit in the Chancery suit, which so powerfully stimulated her curiosity? I have seen him." My lady, leaning forward, looks out of her window. "'That's the message,' observes Sir Leicester. "'I should like to walk a little,' says my lady, still looking out of her window. "'Walk?' repeats Sir Leicester, in a tone of surprise. "'I should like to walk a little,' says my lady, with unmistakable distinctness. "'Please to stop the carriage.' The carriage is stopped, the affectionate man alights from the rumble, opens the door, and lets down the steps, obedient to an impatient motion of my lady's hand. My lady alights so quickly, and walks away so quickly, that Sir Leicester, for all his scrupulous politeness, is unable to assist her, and is left behind. A space of a minute or two has elapsed before he comes up with her. She smiles, looks very handsome, takes his arm, lounges with him for a quarter of a mile is very much bored, and resumes her seat in the carriage. The rattle and clatter continue through the greater part of three days, with more or less of bell-jingling and whip-cracking, and more or less plunging of centaurs and bare-backed horses. Their courtly politeness to each other at the hotels where they tarry is the theme of general admiration. Though my lord is a little aged for my lady, says Madam, the hostess of the Golden Ape, and though he might be her amiable father, one can see at a glance that they love each other. One observes my lord with his white hair standing hat in hand to help my lady to and from the carriage. One observes my lady, how recognisant of my lord's politeness, with an inclination of her gracious head, and the concession of her so genteel fingers. It is ravishing. The sea has no appreciation of great men, but knocks them about like the small fry. It is habitually hard upon Sir Leicester, 
whose countenance it greenly mottles in the manner of sage cheese, and in whose aristocratic system it effects a dismal revolution. It is the radical of nature to him. Nevertheless, his dignity gets over it after stopping to refit, and he goes on with my lady for Chesney Wold, lying only one night in London on the way to Lincolnshire. Through the same cold sunlight, colder as the day declines, and through the same sharp wind, sharper as the separate shadows of bare trees gloom together in the woods, and as the ghosts walk, touched at the western corner by a pile of fire in the sky, resigns itself to coming night, they drive into the park. The rooks, swinging in their lofty houses in the elm-tree avenue, seem to discuss the question of the occupancy of the carriage as it passes underneath, some agreeing that Sir Leicester and my lady are come down, some arguing with malcontents who won't admit it, now all consenting to consider the question disposed of, now all breaking out again in violent debate, incited by one obstinate and drowsy bird who will persist in putting in a last contradictory croak. Leaving them to swing and caw, the travelling chariot rolls on to the house, where fires gleam warmly through some of the windows, though not through so many as to give an inhabited expression to the darkening mass of front. But the brilliant and distinguished circle will soon do that. Mrs. Rouncewell is in attendance, and receives Sir Leicester's customary shake of the hand with a profound curtsy. "'How do you do, Mrs. Rouncewell? I am glad to see you.' "'I hope I have the honour of welcoming you in good health, Sir Leicester.' "'In excellent health, Mrs. Rouncewell.' "'My lady is looking charmingly well,' says Mrs. Rouncewell, with another curtsy. My lady signifies, without profuse expenditure of words, that she is as wearily well as she can hope to be. But Rosa is in the distance, behind the housekeeper and my lady, who has not subdued the quickness of her observation, whatever else she may have conquered, asks, "'Who is that girl?' "'A young scholar of mine, my lady, Rosa.' "'Come here, Rosa.' Lady Dedlock beckons her, with even an appearance of interest. "'Why, do you know how pretty you are, child?' she says, touching her shoulder with her two forefingers. Rosa, very much abashed, says, "'No, if you please, my lady,' and glances up, and glances down, and don't know where to look, but looks all the prettier. "'How old are you?' Nineteen, my lady.' Nineteen, repeats my lady thoughtfully. "'Take care they don't spoil you by flattery.' "'Yes, my lady.' My lady taps her dimpled cheek, with the same delicate gloved fingers, and goes on to the foot of the oak staircase, where Sir Leicester pauses for her as her knightly escort. A staring old deadlock in a panel, as large as life and as dull, looked as if he didn't know what to make of it, which was probably his general state of mind in the days of Queen Elizabeth. That evening, in the housekeeper's room, Rosa could do nothing but murmur Lady Dedlock's praises. She is so affable, so graceful, so beautiful, so elegant, has such a sweet voice and such a thrilling touch, that Rosa can feel it yet. Mrs. Rouncewell confirms all this, not without personal pride, reserving only the one point of affability. Mrs. Rouncewell is not quite sure as to that. 
heaven forbid that she should say a syllable in dispraise of any member of that excellent family, above all of my lady, whom the whole world admires. But if my lady would only be a little more free, not quite so cold and distant, Mrs. Rouncewell thinks she would be more affable. "'Tis almost a pity,' Mrs. Rouncewell adds, "'only almost, because it borders on impiety, to suppose that anything could be better than it is, in such an express dispensation as the deadlock affairs.' "'That my lady has no family. If she had had a daughter now, a grown young lady to interest her, I think she would have had the only kind of excellence she wants.' "'Might not that have made her still more proud, Grandmother?' "'Says what? Who has been home, and come back again? He is such a good grandson.' "'More and most, my dear,' returns the housekeeper with dignity, "'are words it's not my place to use, nor so much as to hear, applied to any drawback on my lady.' "'I beg your pardon, Grandmother, but she is proud, is she not?' "'If she is—' She has reason to be. The Dedlock family have always reason to be. Uh, well, says what? It's uh, to be hoped they line out of their prayer-books a certain passage for the common people about pride and vainglory. Forgive me, Grandmother, only a joke. Sir Lester and Lady Dedlock, my dear, are not fit subjects for joking. "'Sir Lester is no joke by any means,' says Watt, "'and I humbly ask his pardon. "'I suppose, Grandmother, that even with the family and their guests down here, "'there is no objection to my prolonging my stay at the Dedlock Arms for a day or two, "'as any other traveller might?' "'Surely none in the world, child.' "'I am glad of that,' says Watt, "'because—' I have an inexpressible desire to extend my knowledge of this beautiful neighbourhood. He happens to glance at Rosa, who looks down, and is very shy indeed. But according to the old superstition, it should be Rosa's ears that burn, and not her fresh bright cheeks, for my lady's maid is holding forth about her at this moment with surpassing energy. My lady's maid is a Frenchwoman of two-and-thirty, from somewhere in the southern country about Avignon and Marseilles, a large-eyed brown woman with black hair, who would be handsome but for a certain feline mouth and general uncomfortable tightness of face, rendering the jaws too eager and the skull too prominent. There is something indefinably keen and wan about her anatomy, and she has a watchful way of looking out of the corners of her eyes without turning her head, which could be pleasantly dispensed with especially when she is in an ill-humour and near knives. Through all the good taste of her dress and little adornments, these objections so express themselves that she seems to go about like a very neat she-wolf, imperfectly tamed. Besides being accomplished in all the knowledge appertaining to her post, she is almost an Englishwoman in her acquaintance with the language. Consequently, she is in no want of words to shower upon Rosa for having attracted my lady's attention and she pours them out with such grim ridicule as she sits at dinner that her companion the affectionate man is rather relieved when she arrives at the spoon stage of that performance ha 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 
she hortense been in my lady's service since five years and always kept at the distance and this doll this puppet caressed absolutely caressed by my lady on the moment of her arriving at the house and do you know how pretty you are child no my lady you are right there and how old are you child and take care they do not spoil you by flattery child oh how droll it is the best thing altogether in short it is such an admirable thing that mademoiselle hortense can't forget it but at meals for days afterwards even among her countrywomen and others attached in like capacity to the troop of visitors relapses into silent enjoyment of the joke an enjoyment expressed in her own convivial manner by an additional tightness of face thin elongation of compressed lips and sidewise look which intense appreciation of humour is frequently reflected in my lady's mirrors when my lady is not among them all the mirrors in the house are brought into action now many of them after a long blank they reflect handsome faces simpering faces youthful faces faces of threescore and ten that will not submit to be old the entire collection of faces that have come to pass a january week or two at chesney wold and which the fashionable intelligence a mighty hunter before the lord hunts with a keen scent from their breaking cover at the court of st james's to their being run down to death the place in lincolnshire is all alive by day guns and voices are heard ringing in the woods horsemen and carriages enliven the park roads servants and hangers-on pervade the village and the deadlock arms seen by night from distant openings in the trees the row of windows in the long drawing-room where my lady's picture hangs over the great chimney-piece is like a row of jewels set in a black frame on sunday the chill little church is almost warmed by so much gallant company and the general flavour of the deadlock dust is quenched in delicate perfumes the brilliant and distinguished circle comprehends within it no contracted amount of education sense courage honour beauty and virtue yet there is something a little wrong about it in despite of its immense advantages what can it be dandyism there is no king george the fourth now more the pity to set the dandy fashion there are no clear starched jack-towel neckcloths no short-waisted coats no false calves no stays there are no caricatures now of effeminate exquisites so arrayed swooning in opera-boxes with excessive delight and being revived by other dainty creatures poking long-necked scent-bottles at their noses there is no beau whom it takes four men at once to shake into his buckskins or who goes to see all the executions or who is troubled with the self-reproach of having once consumed a pea but is there dandyism in the brilliant and distinguished circle notwithstanding dandyism of a more mischievous sort it has got below the surface and is doing less harmless things than jack-toweling itself and stopping its own digestion to which no rational person need particularly object why yes it cannot be disguised there are at chesney wold this january week some ladies and gentlemen of the newest fashion who have set up a dandyism in religion for instance who in mere lackadaisical want of an emotion have agreed upon a little dandy talk about the vulgar wanting faith in things in general 
meaning in the things that have been tried and found wanting, as though a low fellow should unaccountably lose faith in a bad shilling, after finding it out, who would make the vulgar very picturesque and faithful, by putting back the hands upon the clock of time, and cancelling a few hundred years of history. There are also ladies and gentlemen of another fashion, not so new, but very elegant, who have agreed to put a smooth glaze on the world, and to keep down all its realities, for whom everything must be languid and pretty, who have found out the perpetual stoppage, who are to rejoice at nothing, and be sorry for nothing, who are not to be disturbed by ideas, on whom even the fine arts, attending in powder and walking backwards like the Lord Chamberlain, must array themselves in the milliner's and tailor's patterns of past generations, and be particularly careful not to be in earnest, or to receive any impress from the moving age. Then there is my Lord Boodle, of considerable reputation with his party, who has known what office is, and who tells Sir Leicester Dudlock, with much gravity after dinner, that he really does not see to what the present age is tending. A debate is not what a debate used to be. The house is not what the house used to be. Even a cabinet is not what it formerly was. He perceives with astonishment that supposing the present government to be overthrown, the limited choice of the crown, and the formation of a new ministry, would lie between Lord Coodle and Sir Thomas Doodle, supposing it to be impossible for the Duke of Foodle to act with Goodle, which may be assumed to be the case in consequence of the breach arising out of that affair with Hoodle. Then, giving the Home Department and the leadership of the House of Commons to Joodle, the Exchequer to Coodle, the Colonies to Loodle, and the Foreign Office to Moodle, what are you to do with Noodle? You can't offer him the presidency of the Council. That is reserved for Poodle. You can't put him in the woods and forests. That is hardly good enough for Coodle. What follows? That the country is shipwrecked, lost, and gone to pieces, as is made manifest to the patriotism of Sir Leicester Dedlock, because you can't provide for Noodle. On the other hand, the Right Honourable William Buffy, M.P., contends across the table with someone else, that the shipwreck of the country, about which there is no doubt, it is only the manner of it that is in question, is attributable to Cuffy. If you had done with Cuffy what you ought to have done when he first came into Parliament, and had prevented him from going over to Duffy, you would have got him into alliance with Fuffy. You would have had with you the weight attaching as a smart debater to Guffy. You would have brought to bear upon the elections the wealth of Huffy. You would have got in for three counties, Juffy, Cuffy, and Luffy, and you would have strengthened your administration by the official knowledge and the business habits of Muffy. All this— instead of being, as you now are, dependent on the mere caprice of Puffy. As to this point, and as to some minor topics, there are differences of opinion. But it is perfectly clear to the brilliant and distinguished circle, all round, that nobody is in question about Boodle and his retinue, and Buffy and his retinue. These are the great actors for whom the stage is reserved. A people that are, no doubt, a certain large number of supernumeraries, who are to be occasionally addressed, and relied upon for shouts and choruses, as on the theatrical stage. But Boodle and Buffy, their followers and families, their heirs, executors, administrators, and assigns, are the born first actors, managers, and leaders, and no others can appear upon the scene for ever and ever." In this, too, there is perhaps more dandyism at Chesney Wold 
and the brilliant and distinguished circle will find good for itself in the long run for it is even with the stillest and politest circles as with the circle the necromancer draws around him very strange appearances may be seen in active motion outside with this difference that being realities and not phantoms there is the greater danger of their breaking in chesney world is quite full anyhow so full that a burning sense of injury arises in the breasts of ill-lodged ladies maids and is not to be extinguished only one room is empty it is a turret chamber of the third order of merit plainly but comfortably furnished and having an old-fashioned business air it is mr tulkinghorn's room and is never bestowed on anybody else for he may come at any time he has not come yet it is his quiet habit to walk across the park from the village in fine weather to drop into his room as if he had never been out of it since he was last seen there to request a servant to inform sir leicester that he has arrived in case he should be wanted and to appear ten minutes before dinner in the shadow of the library door he sleeps in his turret with a complaining flagstaff over his head and has some leads outside on which any fine morning when he is down here his black figure may be seen walking before breakfast like a larger species of rook every day before dinner my lady looks for him in the dusk of the library but he is not there every day at dinner my lady glances down the table for the vacant place that would be waiting to receive him if he had just arrived but there is no vacant place every night my lady casually asks her maid is mr tulkinghorn come every night the answer is no my lady not yet one night while having her hair undressed my lady loses herself in deep thought after this reply until she sees her own brooding face in the opposite glass and a pair of black eyes curiously observing her be so good as to attend says my lady then addressing the reflection of hortense to your business you can contemplate your beauty at another time oh pardon it, it was your ladyship's beauty that says my lady you needn't contemplate at all at length one afternoon a little before sunset when the bright groups of figures which have for the last hour or two enlivened the ghost's walk are all dispersed and only sir leicester and my lady remain upon the terrace Mr. Tulkinghorn appears. He comes toward them at his usual methodical pace, which is never quickened, never slackened. He wears his usual expressionless mask, if it be a mask, and carries family secrets in every limb of his body and every crease of his dress. Whether his whole soul is devoted to the great, or whether he yields them nothing beyond the services he sells, is his personal secret. He keeps it, as he keeps the secrets of his clients. He is his own client in that matter, and will never betray himself. "'How do you do, Mr. Tulkinghorn?' says Sir Leicester, giving him his hand. Mr. Tulkinghorn is quite well. Sir Leicester is quite well. My lady is quite well. All highly satisfactory. The lawyer, with his hands behind him, walks at Sir Leicester's side along the terrace. My lady walks upon the other side.' we expected you before says sir leicester a gracious observation as much as to say mr tulkinghorn we remember your existence when you are not here to remind us of it by your presence we bestow a fragment of our minds upon you sir you see mr tulkinghorn comprehending it 
inclines his head, and says he is much obliged. "'I should have come down sooner,' he explains, "'but that I have been much engaged with those matters in the several suits between yourself and Boythorn. "'A man of a very ill-regulated mind,' observes Sir Leicester with severity, "'an extremely dangerous person in any community, a man of a very low character of mind.' "'He is obstinate,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'It is natural to such a man to be so,' says Sir Leicester, looking most profoundly obstinate himself. "'I am not at all surprised to hear it.' "'The only question is,' pursues the lawyer, "'whether you will give up anything.' "'No, sir,' replies Sir Leicester. "'Nothing. I give up.' "'I don't mean anything of importance. That, of course, I know you would not abandon. I mean any minor point.' "'Mr. Tulkinghorn,' returns Sir Leicester, "'there can be no minor point between myself and Mr. Boythorn. If I go farther and observe that I cannot readily conceive how any right of mine can be a minor point, I speak not so much in reference to myself as an individual, as in reference to the family position I have in charge to maintain." Mr. Tulkinghorn inclines his head again. "'I have now my instructions,' he says. Mr. Boythorn will give us a good deal of trouble. "'It is the character of such a mind, Mr. Tulkinghorn,' Sir Leicester interrupts him, "'to give trouble. An exceedingly ill-conditioned, levelling person, a person who fifty years ago would probably have been tried at the old Bailey for some demagogue proceeding, and severely punished. If not,' adds Sir Leicester, after a moment's pause, "'if not hanged, drawn, and quartered.' Sir Leicester appears to discharge his stately breast of a burden, in passing this capital sentence, as if it were the next satisfactory thing to having the sentence executed. "'But night is coming on,' says he, "'and my lady will take cold. My dear, let us go in.' As they turn towards the hall-door, Lady Dedlock addresses Mr. Tulkinghorn for the first time. "'You sent me a message respecting the person whose writing I happened to inquire about. It was like you to remember the circumstances. I had quite forgotten it. Your message reminded me of it again. I can't imagine what association I had with a hand like that, but surely I had some.' "'You had some?' Mr. Tulkinghorn repeats. "'Oh, yes.' returns my lady carelessly. "'I think I must have had some. And, and did you really take the trouble to find out the writer of that actual thing? What is it, uh, affidavit?' "'Yes.' "'How very odd!' They pass into a sombre breakfast-room on the ground floor, lighted in the day by two deep windows. It is now twilight. The fire glows brightly on the panelled wall, and palely on the window-glass, where, through the cold reflection of the blaze, the colder landscape shudders in the wind, and a grey mist creeps along, the only traveller besides the waste of clouds. My lady lounges in a great chair in the chimney-corner, and Sir Leicester takes another great chair opposite. The lawyer stands before the fire with his hand out at arm's length, shading his face. He looks across his arm at my lady. 
"'Yes,' he says. "'I inquired about the man and found him, and, what is very strange, I found him not to be any out-of-the-way person, I am afraid,' Lady Dedlock languidly anticipates. "'I found him dead.' "'Oh, dear me,' remonstrated Sir Leicester, not so much shocked by the fact as by the fact of the fact being mentioned. "'I was directed to his lodging, a miserable, poverty-stricken place, and I found him dead.' "'You will excuse me, Mr. Tulkinghorn,' observed Sir Leicester. "'I think the less said—' "'Pray, Sir Leicester, let me hear the story out.' "'It is my lady speaking.' "'It is quite a story for twilight. How very shocking. Dead?' Mr. Tulkinghorn reasserts it by another inclination of his head. "'Whether by his own hand—' <gasps> "'Upon my honour!' cries Sir Leicester. "'Really!' "'Do let me hear the story,' says my lady. "'Whatever you desire, my dear, but, but I must say—' "'No, you mustn't say. Go on, Mr. Tulkinghorn.' Sir Leicester's gallantry concedes the point— though he still feels that to bring this sort of squalor among the upper classes is really, really— <laughs> "'I was about to say,' resumes the lawyer with undisturbed calmness, "'that whether he had died by his own hand or not, it was beyond my power to tell you. I should amend that phrase, however, by saying that he had unquestionably died of his own act, though whether by his own deliberate intention or by mischance can never certainly be known. The coroner's jury found that he took the poison accidentally. "'And what kind of man,' my lady asks, "'was this deplorable creature?' "'Very difficult to say,' returns the lawyer, shaking his head. "'He had lived so wretchedly, and was so neglected.' with his gypsy colour and his wild black hair and beard, that I should have considered him the commonest of the common. The surgeon had a notion that he had once been something better, both in appearance and condition. "'What did they call the wretched being?' "'They called him what he had called himself, but no one knew his name.' "'Not even any one who had attended on him?' "'No one had attended on him. He was found dead. In fact, I found him.' "'Without any clue to anything more?' "'Without any. "'There was,' says the lawyer meditatively, "'an old portmanteau, but no, there were no papers.' During the utterance of every word of this short dialogue, Lady Dedlock and Mr. Tulkinghorn, without any other alteration in their customary deportment, have looked very steadily at one another, as was natural, perhaps, in the discussion of so unusual a subject.' Sir Leicester has looked at the fire, with a general expression of the deadlock on the staircase. The story being told, he renews his stately protest, saying that, as it is quite clear that no association in my lady's mind can possibly be traceable to this poor wretch, unless he was a begging letter-writer, he trusts to hear no more about a subject so far removed from my lady's station. "'Certainly a collection of horrors.' says my lady, gathering up her mantles and furs. "'But they interest one for the moment. Have the kindness, Mr. Tulkinghorn, to open the door for me.' 
Mr. Tulkinghorn does so with deference, and holds it open while she passes out. She passes close to him, with her usual fatigued manner and insolent grace. They meet again at dinner, again, next day, again, for many days in succession. Lady Dedlock is always the same exhausted deity, surrounded by worshippers, and terribly liable to be bored to death, even while presiding at her own shrine. Mr. Tulkinghorn is always the same speechless repository of noble confidences, so oddly out of place, and yet so perfectly at home. They appear to take as little note of one another as any two people enclosed within the same walls could. But whether each evermore watches and suspects the other, evermore mistrustful of some great reservation, whether each is evermore prepared at all points for the other, and never to be taken unawares, what each would give to know how much the other knows. All this is hidden, for the time, in their own hearts. End of chapter 12Chapter Thirteen of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirteen. Esther's Narrative. We held many consultations about what Richard was to be, first without Mr. Jarndyce as he had requested, and afterwards with him. But it was a long time before we seemed to make progress. Richard said he was ready for anything. When Mr. Jarndyce doubted whether he might not already be too old to enter the Navy, Richard said he had thought of that, and perhaps he was. When Mr. Jarndyce asked him what he thought of the Army, Richard said he had thought of that too, and it wasn't a bad idea. When Mr. Jarndyce advised him to try and decide within himself whether his old preference for the sea was an ordinary boyish inclination or a strong impulse, Richard answered, well, he really had tried very often, and he couldn't make out. "'How much of this indecision of character,' Mr. Jarndyce said to me, "'is chargeable on that incomprehensible heap of uncertainty and procrastination on which he has been thrown from his birth, I don't pretend to say. But that chancery, among its other sins, is responsible for some of it, I can plainly see.' It has engendered or confirmed in him a habit of putting off, and trusting to this, that, and the other chance, without knowing what chance, and dismissing everything as unsettled, uncertain, and confused. The character of much older and steadier people may be even changed by the circumstances surrounding them. It would be too much to expect that a boy's, in its formation, should be the subject of such influences and escape them. I felt this to be true, though if I may venture to mention what I thought besides, I thought it much to be regretted that Richard's education had not counteracted those influences or directed his character. He had been eight years at a public school, and had learnt, I understood, to make Latin verses of several sorts in the most admirable manner. But I never heard that it had been anybody's business to find out what his natural bent was or where his failings lay, or to adapt any kind of knowledge to him. 
he had been adapted to the verses, and had learnt the art of making them to such perfection, that if he had remained at school until he was of age, I suppose he could only have gone on making them over and over again, unless he had enlarged his education by forgetting how to do it. Still, although I had no doubt that they were very beautiful, and very improving, and very sufficient for a great many purposes of life, and always remembered all through life, I did doubt whether Richard would not have profited by someone studying him a little, instead of his studying them quite so much. To be sure, I knew nothing of the subject, and do not even now know whether the young gentleman of classic Rome or Greece made verses to the same extent, or whether the young gentleman of any country ever did. "'I haven't the least idea,' said Richard, musing. "'What I had better be, except that I am quite sure I don't want to go into the church. It's a toss-up.' "'You have no inclination in Mr. Kenge's way?' suggested Mr. Jarndyce. "'I don't know that, sir,' replied Richard. "'I am fond of boating. Article clerks do a good deal on the water. It's a capital profession.' "'A surgeon?' suggested Mr. Jarndyce. "'That's the thing, sir,' cried Richard. "'I doubt if he'd ever once thought of it before.' "'That's the thing, sir,' repeated Richard, with the greatest enthusiasm. "'We have got it at last. M.R.C.S.' He was not to be laughed out of it, though he laughed at it heartily. He said he had chosen his profession, and the more he thought of it, the more he felt that his destiny was clear. The art of healing was the art of all others for him. Mistrusting that he only came to this conclusion, because, having never had much chance of finding out for himself what he was fitted for, and having never been guided to the discovery, he was taken by the newest idea, and was glad to get rid of the trouble of consideration. I wondered whether the Latin verses often ended in this or whether Richard's was a solitary case. Mr. Jarndyce took great pains to talk with him seriously, and to put it to his good sense not to deceive himself in so important a matter. Richard was a little grave after these interviews, but invariably told Ada and me that it was all right, and then began to talk about something else. "'By heaven!' cried Mr. Boythorn, who interested himself strongly in the subject though I need not say that, for he could do nothing weakly. "'I rejoice to find a young gentleman of spirit and gallantry devoting himself to that noble profession. The more the spirit there is in it, the better for mankind, and the worse for those mercenary taskmasters and low tricksters who delight in putting that illustrious art at a disadvantage in the world. By all that's base and despicable cried mr boythorn the treatment of surgeons aboard ship is such that i would submit the legs both legs of every member of the admiralty board to a compound fracture and render it a transportable offence in any qualified practitioner to set them if the system were not wholly changed in eight and forty hours wouldn't you give them a week asked Mr. Jarndyce. "'No,' cried Mr. Boythorn firmly. "'Not on any consideration. Eight and forty hours. As to corporations, parishes, vestry boards, and similar gatherings of jolter-headed clods, 
who assemble to exchange such speeches that, by heaven, they ought to be worked in quicksilver mines for the short remainder of their miserable existence, if it were only to prevent their detestable English from contaminating a language spoken in the presence of the sun, as to those fellows who meanly take advantage of the ardour of gentlemen in the pursuit of knowledge to recompense the inestimable services of the best years of their lives, their long study and their expensive education with pittances too small for the acceptance of clerks, I would have the necks of every one of them wrung, and their skulls arranged in surgeon's hall for the contemplation of the whole profession, in order that its younger members might understand, from actual measurement in early life, how thick skulls may become. He wound up this vehement declaration by looking round upon us with a most agreeable smile, and suddenly thundering, <laughs> over and over again, until anybody else might have been expected to be quite subdued by the exertion. As Richard still continued to say that he was fixed in his choice, after repeated periods for consideration had been recommended by Mr. Jarndyce and had expired, and he still continued to assure Ada and me in the same final manner that it was all right, it became advisable to take Mr. Kenge into counsel. Mr. Kenge, therefore, came down to dinner one day, and leaned back in his chair, and turned his eyeglasses over and over, and spoke in a sonorous voice, and did exactly what I remembered to have seen him do when I was a little girl. "'Ah!' said Mr. Kenge. "'Yes, well, a very good profession, Mr. Jarndyce, a very good profession. The course of study and preparation requires to be diligently pursued,' observed my guardian, with a glance at Richard. "'Oh, no doubt,' said Mr. Kenge, "'diligently.' "'But that being the case, more or less, with all pursuits that are worth much,' said Mr. Jarndyce, "'it is not a special consideration which another choice would be likely to escape.' "'Truly,' said Mr. Kenge, "'and Mr. Richard Carstone, who has so meritoriously acquitted himself in the, shall I say, the classic shades, in which his youth had been passed,' will no doubt apply the habits, if not the principles, and practice of versification in that tongue in which a poet was said, unless I mistake, to be born, not made, to the more eminently practical field of action on which he enters. "'You may rely upon it,' said Richard, in his off-hand manner, "'that I shall go at it and do my best.' "'Very well.' "'Mr. Jarndyce,' said Mr. Kenge, gently nodding his head, "'really, when we are assured by Mr. Richard that he means to go at it, and to do his best,' nodding feelingly and smoothly over those expressions, "'I would submit to you that we have only to inquire into the best mode of carrying out the object of his ambition. Now, with reference to placing Mr. Richard with some sufficiently eminent practitioner. 
"'Is there any one in view at present?' "'No one, Rick, I think,' said my guardian. "'No one, sir,' said Richard. "'Quite so,' observed Mr. Kenge. "'As to situation now, is there any particular feeling on that head?' "'No,' said Richard. "'Quite so,' observed Mr. Kenge again. "'I should like a little variety,' said Richard. "'I mean, a good range of experience.' "'Very requisite, no doubt,' returned Mr. Kenge. "'I think this may be easily arranged, Mr. Jarndyce. "'We have only, in the first place, "'to discover a sufficiently eligible practitioner. "'And as soon as we make our want, "'and, shall I add, our ability to pay a premium, "'known, our only difficulty will be in the selection "'of one from a large number. "'We have only, in the second place, to observe those little formalities which are rendered necessary by our time of life and our being under the guardianship of the court. We shall soon be, shall I say, in Mr. Richard's own light-hearted manner, going at it, to our heart's content. It is a coincidence, said Mr. Kenge, with a tinge of melancholy in his smile, one of those coincidences which may or may not require an explanation beyond our present limited faculties that i have a cousin in the medical profession he might be deemed eligible by you and might be disposed to respond to this proposal i can answer for him as little as for you but he might as this was an opening in the prospect it was arranged that Mr. Kenge should see his cousin, and as Mr. Jarndyce had before proposed to take us to London for a few weeks, it was settled next day that we should make our visit at once and combine Richard's business with it. Mr. Boythorn, leaving us within a week, we took up our abode at a cheerful lodging near Oxford Street, over an upholsterer's shop. London was a great wonder to us, and we were out for hours and hours at a time, seeing the sights, which appeared to be less capable of exhaustion than we were. We made the round of the principal theatres, too, with great delight, and saw all the plays that were worth seeing. I mention this because it was at the theatre that I began to be made uncomfortable again by Mr. Guppy. I was sitting in front of the box one night with Ada, and Richard was in the place he liked best behind Ada's chair, when, happening to look down into the pit, I saw Mr. Guppy, with his hair flattened down upon his head, and woe depicted in his face, looking up at me. I felt all through the performance that he never looked at the actors, but constantly looked at me, and always with a carefully prepared expression of the deepest misery and the profoundest dejection. It quite spoiled my pleasure for that night, because it was so very embarrassing, and so very ridiculous. But from that time forth we never went to the play without my seeing Mr. Guppy in the pit, always with his hair straight and flat, his shirt-collar turned down, and a general feebleness about him. If he were not there when we went in, and I began to hope he would not come, and yielded myself for a little while to the interest of the scene— I was certain to encounter his languishing eyes when I least expected it, and, from that time, 
to be quite sure that they were fixed upon me all the evening. I really cannot express how uneasy this made me. If he would only have brushed up his hair, or, or turned up his collar, it would have been bad enough. But to know that that, that absurd figure was always gazing at me, and always in that demonstrative state of despondency, put such a constraint upon me that I did not like to laugh at the play, or to cry at it, or to move, or to speak. I seemed able to do nothing naturally. As to escaping Mr. Guppy by going to the back of the box, I could not bear to do that, because I knew Richard and Ada relied on having me next them, and that they could never have talked together so happily if anybody else had been in my place. So there I sat, not knowing where to look, for wherever I looked, I knew Mr. Guppy's eyes were following me, and thinking of the dreadful expense to which this young man was putting himself on my account. Sometimes I thought of telling Mr. Jarndyce. Then I feared that the young man would lose his situation, and that I might ruin him. Sometimes I thought of confiding in Richard, but was deterred by the possibility of his fighting Mr. Guppy, and giving him black eyes. Sometimes I thought, should I frown at him, or, or shake my head? Then I felt I could not do it. Sometimes I considered whether I should write to his mother, but that ended in my being convinced that to open a correspondence would be to make the matter worse. I always came to the conclusion, finally, that I could do nothing. Mr. Guppy's perseverance all this time not only produced him regularly at any theatre to which we went, but caused him to appear in the crowd as we were coming out, and even to get up behind our fly, where I am sure I saw him two or three times, struggling among the most dreadful spikes. After we got home, he haunted a post opposite our house. The upholsterers where we lodged, being at the corner of two streets, and my bedroom window being opposite the post, I was afraid to go near the window when I went upstairs, lest I should see him, as I did one moonlight night, leaning against the post and evidently catching cold. If Mr. Guppy had not been, fortunately for me, engaged in the daytime, I really should have had no rest from him. While we were making this round of gaieties, in which Mr. Guppy so extraordinarily participated, the business which had helped to bring us to town was not neglected. Mr. Kenge's cousin was a Mr. Bayham Badger, who had a good practice at Chelsea, and attended a large public institution besides. He was quite willing to receive Richard into his house, and to superintend his studies, and as it seemed that those could be pursued advantageously under Mr. Badger's roof, and Mr. Badger liked Richard, and as Richard said he liked Mr. Badger well enough, an agreement was made, the Lord Chancellor's consent was obtained, and it was all settled. On the day when matters were concluded between Richard and Mr. Badger, we were all under engagement to dine at Mr. Badger's house. We were to be merely a family party, Mrs. Badger's note said, and we found no lady there but Mrs. Badger herself. She was surrounded in the drawing-room by various objects, indicative of her painting a little, playing the piano a little, playing the guitar a little, playing the harp a little, singing a little, working a little, reading a little, writing poetry a little, and botanizing a little. She was a lady of about fifty, I should think, youthfully dressed, and of a very fine complexion. If I add to the little list of her accomplishments that she rouged a little, I do not mean that there was any harm in it. 
Mr. Bayham Badger himself was a pink, fresh-faced, crisp-looking gentleman, with a weak voice, white teeth, light hair, and surprised eyes, some years younger, I should say, than Mrs. Bayham Badger. He admired her exceedingly, but principally, and to begin with, on the curious ground, as it seemed to us, of her having had three husbands. We had barely taken our seats, when he said to Mr. Jarndyce, quite triumphantly, "'You would hardly suppose that I am Mrs. Bayham Badger's third. "'Indeed,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'Her third, said Mr. Badger. "'Mrs. Bayham Badger has not the appearance, Miss Summerson, "'of a lady who has had two former husbands?' "'I said, not at all.' "'And most remarkable men,' said Mr. Badger, in a tone of confidence. "'Captain Swasser, of the Royal Navy, who was Mrs. Badger's first husband, was a very distinguished officer indeed. The name of Professor Dingo, my immediate predecessor, is one of European reputation.' Mrs. Badger overheard him, and smiled. "'Yes, my dear,' Mr. Badger replied to the smile, "'I was observing to Mr. Jarndyce and Miss Summerson that you had had two former husbands, both very distinguished men, and they found it, as people generally do, difficult to believe.' "'I was barely at twenty, said Mrs. Badger, "'when I married Captain Swasser of the Royal Navy. I was in the Mediterranean with him. I am quite a sailor.' on the twelfth anniversary of my wedding-day i became the wife of professor dingo of european reputation added mr badger in an undertone and when mr badger and myself were married pursued mrs badger we were married on the same day of the year i had become attached to the day so that mrs badger has been married to three husbands two of them highly distinguished men said mr badger summing up the facts and each time upon the twenty-first of march at eleven in the forenoon we all expressed our admiration but for mr badger's modesty said mr jarndyce i would take leave to correct him and say three distinguished men "'Thank you, Mr. Jarndyce, what I always tell him,' observed Mrs. Badger. "'And, my dear,' said Mr. Badger, "'what do I always tell you, that without any affectation of disparaging such professional distinction as I may have attained, which our friend Mr. Carstone will have many opportunities of estimating, I am not so weak, no, really,' said Mr. Badger to us generally so unreasonable as to put my reputation on the same footing with such first-rate men as captain swasser and professor dingo perhaps you may be interested mr jarndyce continued mr bayham badger leading the way into the next drawing-room in this portrait of captain swasser it was taken on his return home from the african station where he had suffered from the fever of the country Mrs. Badger considers it too yellow, but it's a very fine head, a very fine head. We all echoed, a very fine head. I feel, when I look at it, 
said Mr. Badger, "'that's a man I should like to have seen. It strikingly bespeaks the first-class man that Captain Swatter preeminently was. On the other side, Professor Dingo. I knew him well, attended him in his last illness, a speaking likeness. Over the piano, Mrs. Bayham Badger when Mrs. Swatter. Over the sofa, Mrs. Bayham Badger when Mrs. Dingo. Of Mrs. Bayham Badger in essay, I possess the original and have no copy. Dinner was now announced, and we went downstairs. It was a very genteel entertainment, very handsomely served. But the captain and the professor still ran in Mr. Badger's head, and as Ada and I had the honour of being under his particular care, we had the full benefit of them. "'Water, Miss Summerson. Allow me. Not in that tumbler, pray. Bring me the professor's goblet, James.' Ada very much admired some artificial flowers under a glass. "'Astonishing how they keep,' said Mr. Badger. "'They were presented to Mrs. Bayham Badger when she was in the Mediterranean.' He invited Mr. Jarndyce to take a glass of claret. "'Not that claret,' he said. "'Excuse me. This is an occasion, and on an occasion I produce some very special claret I happen to have. James!' "'Captain Swasser's wine. "'Mr. Jarndyce, this is a wine that was imported by the captain. "'We will not say how many years ago. "'You'll find it very curious. "'My dear, I shall be happy to take some of this wine with you. "'Captain Swasser's claret to your mistress, James. "'My love, your health.' "'After dinner, when we ladies retired, "'we took Mrs. Badger's first and second husband with us.' Mrs. Badger gave us in the drawing-room a biographical sketch of the life and services of Captain Swasser before his marriage, and a more minute account of him dating from the time when he fell in love with her at a ball on board the Crippler, given to the officers of that ship when she lay in Plymouth Harbour. "'The dear old Crippler,' said Mrs. Badger, shaking her head, "'she was a noble vessel, trim, shipshape, all a taunter, as "'Captain Schwasser used to say. "'You must excuse me if I occasionally introduce a nautical expression. "'I was quite a sailor once. "'Captain Schwasser loved that craft for my sake. "'When she was no longer in commission, "'he frequently said that if he were rich enough to buy her old hulk, "'he would have an inscription let into the timbers of the quarter-deck, "'where we stood as partners in the dance, "'to mark the spot where he fell.' raked fore and aft captain swasser used to say by the fire from my tops it was his naval way of mentioning my eyes <sighs> mrs badger shook her head sighed and, and looked in the glass it was a great change from captain swasser to professor dingo she resumed with a plaintive smile i felt it a good deal at first such an entire revolution in my mode of life. But custom, combined with science, particularly science, inured me to it. Being the professor's sole companion in his botanical excursions, I almost forgot that I had ever been afloat, and became quite learned. It is singular that the professor was the antipodes of Captain Swasser, and that Mr. Badger is not in the least like either." 
We then passed into a narrative of the deaths of Captain Swasser and Professor Dingo, both of whom seemed to have had very bad complaints. In the course of it, Mrs. Badger signified to us that she had never madly loved but once, and that the object of that wild affection, never to be recalled in its fresh enthusiasm, was Captain Swasser. The Professor was yet dying by inches in the most dismal manner, and Mrs. Badger was giving us imitations of his way of saying, with great difficulty, "'Where is Laura? Let Laura give me my toast and water,' when the entrance of the gentleman consigned him to the tomb. Now, I observed that evening, as I observed, for some days past, that Ada and Richard were more than ever attached to each other's society, which was but natural, seeing that they were going to be separated so soon. I was therefore not very much surprised when we got home, and Ada and I retired upstairs, to find Ada more silent than usual, though I was not quite prepared for her coming into my arms, and beginning to speak to me with her face hidden. "'My darling Esther,' murmured Ada, "'I have a great secret to tell you.' "'A mighty secret, my pretty one, no doubt.' "'What is it, Ada?' "'Oh, Esther, you would never guess.' "'Shall I try to guess?' said I. "'Oh, no, don't, pray don't,' cried Ada, very much startled by the idea of my doing so. "'Now, I wonder who it can be about,' said I, pretending to consider. "'It's about,' said Ada in a whisper, "'it's about my cousin Richard.' "'Well, my own,' said I, kissing her bright hair, which was all I could see, "'and what about him?' "'Oh, Esther, you would never guess.' It was so pretty to have her clinging to me in that way, hiding her face, and to know that she was not crying in sorrow, but in a little glow of joy and pride and hope that I would not help her just yet. "'He says,' I know it's very foolish. We are both so young. But he says, with a burst of tears, that he loves me dearly, Esther. Does he indeed? said I. I never heard of such a thing. Why, my pet of pets, I could have told you that weeks and weeks ago. To see Ada lift up her flushed face in joyful surprise, and hold me round the neck and laugh and cry and blush, was so pleasant. "'Why, my darling,' said I, "'what a goose you must take me for. Your cousin Richard has been loving you as plainly as he could for I don't know how long.' "'And yet you never said a word about it,' cried Ada, kissing me. "'No, my love,' said I. I waited to be told. But now I have told you. You don't think it wrong of me, do you? returned Ada. She might have coaxed me to say no, if I had been the hardest-hearted duenna in the world. Not being that, I said no very freely. And now, said I, I know the worst of it. Oh, that's not quite the worst of it, Esther, dear, cried Ada holding me tighter, and laying down her face again upon my breast. No, said I, not even that. No, not even that, said Ada, shaking her head. 
"'Why, you never mean to say—I was beginning in joke.' But Ada, looking up and smiling through her tears, cried, "'Yes, I do. You know, you know, I do.' And then sobbed out, "'With all my heart, I do. With all my heart, Esther.' I told her laughingly why I had known that too, just as well as I had known the other, and we sat before the fire, and I had all the talking to myself for a little while, though there was not much of it, and Ada was soon quiet and happy. "'Do you think my cousin John knows, dear Dame Durden?' she asked. "'Unless my cousin John is blind, my pet,' said I, I should think my cousin John knows pretty well as much as we know. "'We want to speak to him before Richard goes,' said Ada timidly, "'and we wanted you to advise us, and to tell him so. Perhaps you wouldn't mind Richard's coming in, Dame Durden?' "'Oh, Richard is outside, is he, my dear?' said I. "'I am not quite certain,' returned Ada with a bashful simplicity that would have won my heart if she had not won it long before. But I think he's waiting at the door. There he was, of course. They brought a chair on either side of me, and put me between them, and really seemed to have fallen in love with me instead of one another. They were so confiding and so trustful and so fond of me. They went on in their own wild way for a little while. I never stopped them. I enjoyed it too much myself and then we gradually fell to considering how young they were, and how there must be a lapse of several years before this early love could come to anything, and how it could come to happiness only if it were real and lasting, and inspired them with a steady resolution to do their duty to each other with constancy, fortitude, and perseverance, each always for the other's sake. Well, Richard said that he would work his fingers to the bone for Ada, and Ada said that she would work her fingers to the bone for Richard, and they called me all sorts of endearing and sensible names, and we sat there advising and talking half the night. Finally, before we parted, I gave them my promise to speak to their cousin John to-morrow. So, when to-morrow came, I went to my guardian after breakfast, in the room that was our town substitute for the growlery, and told him that I had it in trust to tell him something. "'Well, little woman,' said he, shutting up his book. "'If you have accepted the trust, there can be no harm in it.' "'I hope not, guardian,' said I. "'I can guarantee that there is no secrecy in it, for it only happened yesterday.' "'Aye? And what is it, Esther?' "'Guardian,' said I, "'you remember the happy night, when first we came down to Bleak House, when Ada was singing in the dark room?' I wished to call to his remembrance the look he had given me then. Unless I am much mistaken, I saw that I did so. "'Because,' said I, with a little hesitation, "'Yes, my dear,' said he, "'don't hurry.' "'Because,' said I, "'Ada and Richard have fallen in love, and have told each other so.' "'Already?' cried my guardian, quite astonished. "'Yes,' said I, "'and to tell you the truth, guardian, I rather expected it.' "'The deuce you did,' said he. 
he sat considering for a minute or two with his smile at once so handsome and so kind upon his changing face and then requested me to let them know that he wished to see them when they came he encircled ada with one arm in his fatherly way and addressed himself to richard with a cheerful gravity rick said mr jarndyce i am glad to have won your confidence i hope to preserve it when i contemplated these relations between us four which have so brightened my life and so invested it with new interests and pleasures i certainly did contemplate afar off the possibility of you and your pretty cousin here don't be shy ada don't be shy my dear being in a mind to go through life together i saw and do see many reasons to make it desirable but that was afar off rick afar off we look afar off sir returned richard well said mr jarndyce that's rational now hear me my dears i might tell you that you don't know your own minds yet that a thousand things may happen to divert you from one another that is as well this chain of flowers you have taken up is very easily broken or it might become a chain of lead but i will not do that such wisdom will come soon enough i dare say if it is to come at all i will assume that a few years hence you will be in your hearts to one another what you are to-day all i say before speaking to you according to that assumption is if you do change if you do come to find that you are more commonplace cousins to each other as man and woman than you were as boy and girl your manhood will excuse me rick don't be ashamed still to confide in me for there will be nothing monstrous or uncommon in it i am only your friend and distant kinsman i have no power over you whatever but i wish and hope to retain your confidence if i do nothing to forfeit it i am very sure sir returned richard that i speak for ada too when i say that you have the strongest power over us both rooted in respect gratitude and affection strengthening every day dear cousin john said ada on his shoulder my father's place can never be empty again all the love and duty i could ever have rendered to him is transferred to you come said mr jarndyce now for our assumption now we lift our eyes up and look hopefully at the distance rick the world is before you and it is most probable that as you enter it so it will receive you trust in nothing but in providence and your own efforts never separate the two like the heathen wagoner constancy in love is a good thing but it means nothing and is nothing without constancy in every kind of effort if you had the abilities of all the great men past and present you could do nothing well without sincerely meaning it and setting about it if you entertain the supposition that any real success in great things or in small ever was or could be ever will or can be wrested from fortune by fits and starts leave that wrong idea here or leave your cousin ada here i will leave it here sir replied richard smiling if i brought it here just now but i hope i did not and will work my way on to my cousin ada in the hopeful distance 
"'Right,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'If you are not to make her happy, why should you pursue her?' "'I wouldn't make her unhappy, no, not even for her love,' retorted Richard proudly. "'Well said,' cried Mr. Jarndyce. "'That's well said. She remains here in her home with me. Love her, Rick, in your active life, no less than in her home when you revisit it, and all will go well. Otherwise, all will go ill. That's the end of my preaching. I think you and Ada had better take a walk. Ada tenderly embraced him, and Richard heartily shook hands with him, and then the cousins went out of the room, looking back again directly, though, to say that they would wait for me. The door stood open, and we both followed them with our eyes as they passed down the adjoining room, on which the sun was shining, and out at its farther end. Richard, with his head bent, and her hand drawn through his arm, was talking to her very earnestly, and she looked up in his face, listening, and seemed to see nothing else. So young, so beautiful, so full of hope and promise, they went on lightly through the sunlight, as their own happy thoughts might then be traversing the years to come, and making them all years of brightness. So they passed away into the shadow, and were gone. It was only a burst of light that had been so radiant. The room darkened as they went out, and the sun was clouded over. "'Am I right, Esther?' said my guardian when they were gone. He was so good and wise to ask me whether he was right. "'Rick may gain out of this the quality he wants, wants at the core of so much that is good,' said Mr. Jarndyce, shaking his head. "'I have said nothing to Ada, Esther. She has her friend and counsellor always near.' And he laid his hand lovingly upon my head. I could not help showing that I was a little moved, though I did all I could to conceal it. "'Tut-tut,' said he, "'but we must take care, too, that our little woman's life is not all consumed in care for others.' "'Care? My dear guardian, I believe I am the happiest creature in the world.' "'I believe so, too,' said he. "'But some one may find out what Esther never will, "'that the little woman is to be held in remembrance above all other people.' "'I have omitted to mention in its place "'that there was someone else at the family dinner-party. "'It was not a lady. It was a gentleman. "'It was a gentleman of a dark complexion, a young surgeon. "'He was rather reserved, but I thought him very sensible and agreeable. "'At least—' Ada asked me if I did not, and I said yes. End of chapter 13「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.